This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. What's going on in Chicago? What the hell is going on? Covering the big ideas. If you do not feel well, for God's sake, stay home. Save lives. The tough choices. Guacamole? No, I like guacamole. And the only three ways a Chicago alderman leaves the city council. The ballot box, the jury box, or the pine box. Now, Bill Cameron. Well, what do you think? Is racism a public health crisis in Chicago? When we think of a public health crisis, we think of pandemics. But this week, Mayor Lightfoot declared racism to be a public health crisis. Since we have the luxury of time here on this Juneteenth weekend, here's the mayor making the case. When we think about racism, many of us think about its visible and audible forms. But the reality is the insidious nature of Systemic racism has other impacts that are every bit as deep and harmful, but often ones that we can't see, like the impacts on the psyche and other impacts on our bodies that are just as, if not more, deadly. Let me frame this from a personal perspective. Racism puts a cap on someone's humanity and tells them that they're lesser simply by virtue of the color of their skin. Effectively, without interventions, destroying their perception of themselves and leaving them with lasting mental ailments such as depression, anxiety, and anger, which then typically turn into serious physical ailments. I know this firsthand from my life. Many of you know this. Both of my parents grew up in the segregated South, and they were born in the 1920s. They grew up in a country and in a land and in a region that every part of their existence was constrained simply because of the color of their skin. As black people, they were a threat to the white rule of the day. And they had every aspect of their growing up, every aspect of their community, their humanity was defined by trying to stay out of harm's way simply because they were black. They both had dreams, dreams that were never realized. My mother wanted to be a nurse and my father wanted to be a lawyer. But because they were black and because black success was considered an anomaly, but worse, a threat and became a target for retaliation, my parents like so many others of their generation and other generations, were indoctrinated to believe that they would never, ever be able to reach for and accomplish their dreams. This was and still is the case for far too many black residents and residents of color in our city. And ladies and gentlemen, it is literally killing us. Here in Chicago, the life expectancy gap between black and non-black residents, on average, is a whopping 9.2 years. And depending on the neighborhood that you live in, that gap is even wider. Life expectancy for black Chicagoans is substantially lower than for our white neighbors. And despite a substantial amount of education, investments, interventions, this historic lack of access to preventative health care has meant that as of June of this year, black death rates from COVID-19 still are more than double that 
of white residents. And the Latinx death rate exceeds the white death rate by 76%. These sobering statistics stem from disproportionate rates of chronic diseases, born of historic disparities in medical treatment, safe spaces to exercise, access to nutritious food, the overrepresentation of black and Latinx residents in low-wage and frontline workforces where healthcare benefits are non-existent in many instances, where employees often work in close proximity to each other and are less able to take paid time off when they are sick. And the list goes on and on. This information confirms what we already know, which is that 80% of health outcomes are due to social factors, including housing, safety, education, economic opportunity, factors every single one of which have, through our history as a nation, been impacted by systemic racism. That's why we're making this declaration today, because we can no longer allow racism to rob our residents of the opportunity to live and lead full, healthy, and happy lives. And we are working closely with the Chicago Department of Public Health and our community organizations to address these inequities once and for all. In recent years, we've taken a number of steps to advance racial and health equity, meaning that today's announcement is a continuum, an extension of those ongoing efforts to close the racial health gap. We established a health in all policies approach to the city's decision making, including policy development and implementation, budgeting, and delivery of services. We established racial equity leadership positions and offices across multiple departments and agencies, starting with the first ever chief equity officer role that Candace Moore occupies in my office and the Chief Racial Equity Officer role at CDPH. We've also advanced data reports and tools to support racial equity, as well as fostered community co-leadership to promote equitable transit-oriented development and COVID-19 vaccine distribution, notably reflected in the Racial Equity Rapid Response Team, whose members are with us here today, that was key to our equitable response to COVID-19 vaccine distribution, and my hope is, will be a critical resource as we continue to build out our post-COVID-19 community health infrastructure. As Dr. Arity will explain in more detail shortly, we have additional tools to fight against racial and health inequity. These tools include Healthy Chicago 2025, an initiative launched by CDPH last year that seeks to reduce the racial life expectancy gap with strategies that tackle the root causes of health inequities. And most recently, a report entitled The State of Black Health, State of Health for Blacks in Chicago, which is the first report of its kind to focus exclusively on black health realities and outcomes with recommendations for our black residents. That report uses words and graphs to showcase how the racial life expectancy gap is driven by five main factors. Chronic diseases, homicide, infant mortality, HIV, flu, and other infections, and opioid overdoses in that order of priority. This landmark report was written by five black female doctors within CDPH, and I want to commend those doctors on their thoughtful and powerful work.
These are incredible steps forward, but folks, we all know that we have more work to do. It's going to take more than just city departments and sister agencies putting in the work to eradicate systemic racism here in our city. As residents of the city, we have to all come together and acknowledge the truth, acknowledge the past and the present, and be cognizant of and take accountability for the ways that we, we perpetuate racism in our everyday interactions and individual lives. And we've got to change the systems that reinforce that painful legacy. I also want to acknowledge that as we were coming here today, some of you may have heard, the U.S. Supreme Court once again rejected an attempt by Republicans to eliminate the protections of the Affordable Care Act. It's remarkable that in a time of a pandemic, these attacks continue. It's stunning, actually. But luckily, in a 7-2 vote, the Supreme Court rebuffed the latest challenge to a health care um, legislation that has literally given a lifeline to tens of millions of Americans who otherwise would be without health care. When we talk about systemic racism, we need to look at those actions as well. We need to talk about what's going on in the halls of Congress, but also in state legislatures with attorney generals who, for purely partisan reasons, want to deny black and brown and poor, but also middle income people the ability to live a healthy life and not have the burden of not having care, have the burden of pre-existing conditions that they can't get coverage for. We need to move past this moment. We need to move past this moment for a host of reasons, but in the city, we are doing what we can to stand firm, to make sure that our residents have access to the tools that they need to live healthy and vibrant lives. Now, I am sure some of you think this is more of a crime problem than a public health crisis. Here's what the mayor says to that. Obviously, we don't want shootings. We don't want homicides. But the biggest driver of a life expectancy gap is a lack of access to medical care, the underlying comorbidities like diabetes, health disease, heart disease. Um, that is really the thing that is driving it. Homicide's not the, the number one factor. It's a factor to be sure, but certainly not the number one factor. The data absolutely proves something entirely different. The things that lead to life expectancy gaps, to healthcare inequities, are rooted fundamentally in systemic racism, but they manifest themselves in lots of different ways. So what we have been trying to do is counteract that history, those, those, that legacy, by making the kind of investments, whether it's in public housing, in public health, uh, in the uh, support services that we provide, um, in education, all of these investments are with an eye towards equity and really righting the wrong of the past. And we'll continue uh, to make sure that we've got the resources that we need to make those um, kind of investments. Because fundamentally, that's what's going to turn things around. And you mentioned uh, public safety. Look, I'm a firm believer in uh, treating public um, safety, but particularly gun violence, as a public health crisis. And when you do that, you look at the root causes. That examination leads us right back to the same places that we're talking about today. Systemic racism, lack of investment, lack of opportunity, which leads to lack of hope, despair, and violence. It is a continuum. When communities have been disinvested in for decades, when systemic racism is unchecked, when young people grow up 
not seeing people go to work every day, have a job, a real job, that they can build a life on. Those are the kind of root causes of the violence that we're seeing. There's no question about it. So we've got to disrupt those root causes by flooding these areas with resources, building capacity, working hand in hand uh, with the community. But I'm going to say what I always say in this kind of circumstance, the federal government has to step up to. The fact of the matter is there are too many illegal guns on the streets of Chicago, and we're seeing these mass shootings now everywhere. I think there's over 50 just in the last few weeks um, or last couple months across the country, whether it's Austin was the most recent one outside of Chicago. I talk to my fellow mayors all the time, and it is the number one thing that is a topic of conversation because without federal intervention, empower the ATF, make sure that federal relations and gun dealers are only selling to people that have a valid void card, not straw purchasing, make sure that those guns actually stay in the hands of the person who purchased them and not leave um, and get out on the streets as they do, stem the tide uh, of gun trafficking across our borders. All of those things are low-hanging fruit. They don't have to go to Congress and deal with the vagaries of the House and the Senate. These are things that the executive branch can do right now, today, to bring better safety to cities all across the country. And backing up the mayor is her public health commissioner, Dr. Allison Arwoody. For the past year and a half, you've heard me talking a lot about COVID every day. And people have been asking me, what's next? Well, COVID is not over, but let me tell you, what we are talking about today predates, is still going on, and to an extent will outlive COVID. And this is what is next for the Chicago Department of Public Health and for the city of Chicago. We've seen the toll from COVID on families who have lost loved ones, lost jobs, lost hope during the pandemic, and we've heard over and over again how COVID has been particularly devastating for Black and Latinx communities. But we have also seen the power of an entire city coming together with a common purpose to beat this virus. And we are succeeding. We're averaging just over 60 cases a day with a percent positivity of 0.8% today. But make no mistake, much of this success has become has come because we have taken an all of government partnered with community approach from mass vaccination sites to rental assistance programs to neighborhood food distribution. And throughout, we have been led by data. We have targeted resources to the people and communities where they are most needed, but we have also seen that when one community is not well, the city is not well and cannot move ahead. And and now we have to bring that same unrelenting focus to another more pernicious public health threat, racism. Earlier this week, the Chicago Department of Public Health released a first of its kind data book, The State of Health for Blacks in Chicago. And as Mayor Lightfoot mentioned, the average life expectancy gap between black Chicagoans and non-black Chicagoans in Chicago is 9.2 years and rising. And here's some more data highlighting the focus of Healthy Chicago 2025. The diabetes-related death rate among blacks in Chicago is 70% higher than among non-blacks. The homicide rate among blacks is nine times higher than among non-blacks. 
Black infants are almost three times as likely to die in their first year of life compared to non-blacks. Blacks accounted for half of the people living in Chicago with HIV. And the opioid-related overdose death among blacks is more than three times the rate among non-blacks. And importantly, the racial life expectancy gap is not limited to black Chicago. We've also seen life expectancy falling for Latinx and Asian Chicagoans, even as it has been increasing for white Chicagoans. There is nothing natural about these statistics. They are unjust and they are preventable. As you heard, we have to work on the root causes of diseases to treat them properly. The immediate causes of this life expectancy gap in Chicago may be chronic diseases or rates of violence. But what causes those chronic diseases? What causes those rates of violence? And we know here in Chicago, life opportunities from education to employment to housing are different in neighborhoods just a few miles apart. And this is the evidence of deeply rooted social, structural, and power inequities that have long privileged white Chicagoans. And so today we reckon with this deadly impact of structural racism on the health of Chicagoans. But it is not enough for words to declare a crisis. We insist on coupling these words and our data with meaningful action. So I want to tell you about what's next and three commitments CDPH is making. First, we are investing now and moving forward in community solutions. When we released Healthy Chicago 2025 last year, we recognized if we're going to address root causes, local organizations know what's best to promote health and racial equity in their neighborhoods. And we've seen this play out in COVID-19. So today, we're taking a major step to let communities lead the way. We've allocated $9.6 million in COVID-19 relief funding from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, with more to come to establish Healthy Chicago Equity zones, six geographic areas covering the entire city that will be led by regional and community organizations. And you see the, represent, the representatives of the lead organizations here. Leading in the far south is Phalanx Family Services. In the near south, Greater Auburn Gresham Development Corporation. In the north central region, Swedish Covenant Hospital. In the northwest, Northwest Side Housing Center. In the southwest, Southwest Organizing Project. And in the west, Rush University Medical Center on behalf of Westside United. And relying on participatory data-informed processes, these organizations will be creating community-based stakeholder coalitions, bringing together community-based organizations from every neighborhood in Chicago to develop targeted strategies to improve both individual and community wellness. In 2021, our Healthy Chicago Equity Zones will primarily focus on increasing vaccine uptake in the neighborhoods that have been most up impacted by COVID, building on the work from Protect Chicago Plus and the city's racial equity rapid response team. But as we continue to recover from the pandemic, these coalitions will also lead hyperlocal strategies to confront the root factors, health care and social service access, food access, housing conditions, community safety, and the physical and built neighborhood environments. Secondly, we are becoming a more affirmatively anti-racist organization. Sandy Brown is going to speak briefly in a moment about that. But we think that it's critical that institutions must work to transform from within if we're going to be serious about doing this work. And thirdly, we're democratizing our data. Because information is power, 
power, we are making investments to ensure that hyper-local data, disaggregated by race, becomes widely available by neighborhood, so that people can take, issue, take action on issues that matter to them. And our hope is that soon, people will be able to talk about neighborhood-level indicators, like rates of chronic disease or food insecurity, in the same way that we've come to talk about COVID case rates or positivity. Visit the new and improved ChicagoHealthAtlas.org to get started. This pandemic illuminated inequities that have existed for generations, but we have a one-in-a-generation opportunity here to take what we have learned from COVID forward to a point of transformational change and the opportunity to achieve the healthy Chicago we all deserve. Public Health Commissioner Dr. Ellison Arbody and Mayor Lightfoot making the case that racism is a public health crisis. Up next, the roundtable with Lynn Sweet, Ray Long, Greg Hines, and Heather Sharon. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Now, Bill Cameron. Down to the roundtable where we just get to tell the truth with Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times. Hi, Lynn. Hi, everyone. She covers Washington. Also, welcome to Ray Long of the Tribune. Hey, Ray. Hello there, Bill. Greg Hines of Cranes. Hey, Greg. Hey, Bill. And Heather Sharon of WTTW. Hey, Heather. Hey, Bill. Well, Heather, on civilian police oversight, the aldermen, or the older persons, I guess we should call them, just can't make a decision. Bring us up to date on what happened on Friday. Well, Friday was supposed to be the crucial test of a proposal to put an elected board in charge of the Chicago Police Department. But the substance of the measure, which has been crafted really over the last five years, ever since the death of Laquan McDonald, made the city reevaluate its police oversight system, didn't get a vote because Alderman Chris Taliaferro, who is the mayor's handpicked chair for the Public Safety Committee, blocked a vote. Um, after a last-minute change by supporters of the coalition's proposal. What it did is it removed a provision that would have required a referendum be held that would give this elected board more power. That was a non-starter. It wasn't going to make it through the Public Safety Committee. And to get it onto the floor of the city council, they knew they were going to have to make this change. But you can argue that it, it backfired or this was the reason that they used to block a vote. There was an attempt to schedule another meeting on Monday before Wednesday's full city council meeting. That also failed. So it is where it has been since Mayor Lightfoot took office in May 2019 and promised to get this done within her first 100 days uh, in limbo and going nowhere fast. Well, Greg, do you think we're ever going to get civilian police oversight? You know, I would like to think so, Bill. There ought to be a way to come up with a reasonable compromise that satisfies everybody. But this is uh, the core problem here is that is that uh, not only are politicians being politicians and hot dogging a little bit on the side, uh, but the core issues just uh, uh, 
can conflict. I mean, there's different interests for different groups. Um, uh, the folks who've, who have uh, have seen a lot of abuse by police uh, really want to maximize the control. The police want to minimize the control. They say you're looking over their sh- our shoulders. We can't do our jobs. Um, uh, you've got uh, all of them in some neighborhoods want more cops. All of them in other neighborhoods want less cops. Um, you know, trying to come up with something that strikes that in the middle that can get 26 votes is really tough, and you add this overlay of politics that's going on in this town now uh, that's increasingly polarized around racial lines, and I can see why it's hard to get done. How about you, Ray? What's your take on this one? Well, it, it just adds to the question of who's in charge. If you if you keep pushing uh, all of these uh, boards, if you push the the police oversight into civilian hands. Um, you take away the control of the city, but you know the city hasn't earned uh, keeping it. That's for sure. But they should stand up and take their responsibility. So um, some kind of hybrid, as as uh, Greg was talking about, some kind of compromise could be reached on that. But when you put it in the light of the whole idea that. The school board now could be very diverse, and the direction of the town could be very diverse because you have the school board going one way and the mayor potentially going another way, and the mayor not being the one where the buck stops on his or her desk, then you've got uh, just more of a recipe here for saying the the power will be diffuse, and you need some buddy to say this is the person in charge and this is where the buck stops and lynn there is police reform pending on capitol hill bring us up to date on the status of that well negotiations are going on right now between central league senator cory booker who is a democrat from new jersey and senator tim scott who is a republican from south carolina uh scott was involved as was Booker in other ver- in, in, uh, versions of lease reform bills that were pending in the last session. The Democratic version passed the House and included anti-lynching provisions uh, ex- and uh, choke- anti-chokehold provisions. But here's what seems to be the sticking point now is uh, whether or not individual police people can be held liable for anything they do wrong. Uh, Republicans are saying that's a non-starter. A compromise may be that you hold police departments, not individuals, responsible. Hey, we should talk more about the elected school board because uh, the mayor is holding out the hope, Heather, that somehow she can negotiate a more acceptable bill to her, although the governor says he's going to sign the bill that the House sent him this week. Uh, How do you read this one, Heather? Well, it's a little bit strange to hear the mayor say that now real negotiations can start after the bill is passed and and literally hours after the governor said he he would sign it. And I think that that is really an encapsulation of all of the problems that Mayor Lightfoot has suffered in Springfield, despite having a couple of high-profile wins, most prominently the Chicago Casino redo. Uh, she is just 
not batting very well at all. And I think it's quite likely that the sponsor, Delia Ramirez, will release the hold that she put on the bill in the next couple of weeks, and then it will head to the governor's desk. Um, this, I think Ray is correct. This would be really a sea change in how Chicago runs its schools and the power that the mayor has. And the devil is definitely in the details on this one. Greg, what do you think? How will the elected school board finally come down? I think that uh, the mayor may get something in the in the form of a trailer bill that uh, Representative Ramirez is talking about uh, that uh, would change some of the things on the margins. Uh, for instance, impose some limits on fundraising. Uh, there's some some concern that uh, that board members shouldn't be paid. Uh, I could see that passing in the law at some point. But on the core uh, concept here, they were going to have a 21 member board, all of them were going to be elected, one citywide, the chair, uh, the other 20 from districts, uh, by uh, uh, by the uh, uh, 2026 election. That's not going to change. That boat has sailed, uh, and uh, why the mayor keeps hope, offering hope that she can change it, frankly, mystifies me. Uh, and I, as I'm with Ray on this one. Uh, I have real concerns. I think the, the mayor's objections here uh, that, uh, hey, you're just going to create this scrum that's going to be expensive, high-level politicking. The unions could end up controlling both sides of the table. Uh, I think she's right about that. But people clearly want this. The legislature's been under a lot of pressures. The Chicago members I've talked to all tell me their constituents say, pass the thing. It's going to happen. So let it go. Right, well, here's why I think, can I just jump in? Because sure. uh, uh, Speaker Welch was a guest on uh, the show I do with Laura Washington, and he was on Thursday night. And he kept stressing about how the mayor and um, Representative Ramirez are still going to talk in, in what is called in their jargon a trailer bill. And, and my experience is sometimes it ain't really over until it's over. And even if some changes on the margins can end up being substantial, especially if they put some handcuffs on fundraising that somehow could keep outside money. You know, there's going to be intense uh, outside money potential because the CTU, one way or the other, will have candidates uh, that it backs. And then there will be the forces like uh, the, the same groups that came in with a lot of money to bolster charter schools. Uh, Etc. So there still are some opportunities to make uh, something you don't want better. So I don't think she should throw in the towel. I've seen legislation, uh, you know, the, it, this thing is still a living creature. No. Do I, I expect her to, to get rid of it in a trailer? No. But there is absolutely no reason why she shouldn't stick to the negotiation table and see what it is. But I have a question, and I should have known this uh, already. Are these coming as a partisan or nonpartisan? Meaning they are nonpartisan, technically. Okay, so that means there's still going to be shadow, uh, you know, shadow uh, forces at work, and backing some or not another. You'll see uh, all the splits between within the Democratic family take place here, and it will be if and if these uh, and if Mary Lightfoot gets in her bid to have undocumented uh, people vote, that I see creating a whole series of subsequent problems uh, that will have a lot of ramifications. 
Hey, Ray, I should ask you, because the governor said again this week that he hasn't made a decision yet on whether he's going to run for a second term. This from a guy who's already spent $50 bucks on next year's elections. Is, uh, is it true enough to print, as they say, that he hasn't made a decision, Ray? Well, man, if he hasn't made a decision and he's invested $50 million, it's just a an example of how he's trying to clear the field before he makes a decision. Um, he has put down $50 million. He could be still making a decision. I guess he's got that kind of money to burn. He's a billionaire, so he could set that aside. And But I am doubtful that that he is uh, leaning toward not running. He shows the signs that he is getting ready to ramp up again, and he's taking all the popular bills like Juneteenth and uh, school board uh, election, et cetera, and uh, hailing his budget and and doing things that uh, he believes are good democratic issues and uh, pushing them through and and signing them. So right now he's trying to eliminate uh, the uh, carbon uh, problems with our air. So he doesn't sound like a guy who's uh, thinking, well, I'm going to do this and this is my last hurrah. He sounds like somebody who's trying to build a record here to run on uh, for uh, governor and maybe even uh, I and a national office down the road. Heather, what's your take on Pritzker playing at Coy? Well, you know, he's got a very difficult road to hoe here because what you don't want to do as just before you go in front of the voters is trigger a massive energy price increase or destabilize the state's energy markets, because as we've seen in Texas, that can be really damaging to everybody involved. So he's, but he's also got to do, he's also got to fulfill campaign promises to address climate change. And nobody wants to get caught looking like they're trying to do comment or excellent a favor in today's political environment. So it's a tricky, tricky uh, uh, needle to thread and it is um, almost impossible when you have the competing pressures of both the Illinois House and the Illinois Senate to to, to um, consider. So maybe there'll be a deal that comes together in the next several weeks. Maybe there won't. It's an issue that's going to be around for a long time in Illinois and every other state. Uh, Greg, any you think there's any chance Pritzker won't run? Well, until the man says I'm running, he's not running. And uh, I suppose in, in theory there's some uh, possibility that something is going on in the background that, that none of us have heard about. Uh, but uh, I'm with I, I Ray. He's doing all the kinds of things that uh, somebody who's planning to run again uh, should be doing. Uh, money is no problem. Uh, he's lining up uh, favorable bills and bona fides. Uh, I know his people are out there uh, uh, doing regular polling. Um, uh Maybe it's just a question if he doesn't want to put the target on his back. You know, the moment he says I'm running again, everything says, "Well, he's, he's you know he's he's just a politician who wants to get a vote," uh, as opposed to the incumbent governor. Uh, I could be shocked, but uh, I but I don't think it's going to happen that, that he doesn't run. Uh, Lynn, what do you think on this? I'm going to invoke the late Mayor Harold Washington. I was pestering him one time about he hadn't announced for re-election yet. 
or the big mystery was, is he going to run as a Democrat or as an independent or create a third party? And he just looked at me one day and he said, of course he knows what he's going to do, but he's not saying it yet because what you do in politics is, and this is a quote, you always keep them guessing. And another reason why Pritzker can absolutely take his time is with the new primary date, meaning it's pushed back to June instead of mid-March, there is even more reason not to make an announcement now because as was just said, it just uh, puts a target on his back. Hey, this week the Chicago Bears said they submitted a bid for the land at Arlington Park, suggesting that they're thinking about leaving town. To me, this is a head fake. Greg, how do you read this? Um, I'm not convinced that it is necessarily a head fake, Bill. Um, there's clearly uh, the Bears want some things at Soldier Field that the city could give them uh, without a lot of fuss and muss. Uh, mostly things that go to the bottom line. Uh, they want uh, probably signage rights, for instance, uh, the kinds of big billboards you have up at Wrigley Field that make a ton of money for the for the rickets. Uh, but there's some core problems with with Soldier Field that aren't going to go away. It's too small. It's the smallest uh, stadium in the NFL. Uh, it's a publicly owned, so you can't give naming rights. Uh, 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 at least the city's shown no inclination to grant naming rights. Um, uh, that costs the the, the the Bears a lot of money. And you can't do any of the ancillary stuff around it, other entertainment kinds of things that have occurred in, in, in other NFL cities where they built stadiums and whatever. Um, do I think that the, they're probably not going to go? I'd say the odds are against it, but uh, man, I think that uh, there's a there's a case to be made that uh, that their options at Soldier Field just are limited. They can't maximize their potential, uh, and that uh, they really need to move into the new era and come up with a stadium that was built in this century, not the last one. Heather, what do you think on this? Well, if the Bears do move, I sure hope they take the toilet bowl that they dropped in the middle of Soldier Field with them. And um, and I think that you know it's it's interesting and how much this this you know situation reflects what happened in the early 1970s under Richard J. Daley. And we even heard Mayor Lightfoot yesterday um, inviting them to enjoy being called uh, the Arlington Heights Bears and casting aspersions on their lack of success on the field. So I, I don't know. I, I, I still haven't recovered from, from the changes made to Soldier Field, which sounds like was a, a, a you know, interim measure that did nothing to address the real issues. So Yeah, the, but E.T. says that Soldier stadium. Field is his favorite stadium in all the, in all the country. Yeah. Ray, you've seen a lot of uh, shakedowns like this go on. What's your take on this one? I'm just amazed that uh, this is happening when it hasn't been really that long ago that we went through incredible negotiations in Springfield to to uh, build the uh, stadium inside Soldier Field the way it is. And so uh, I'm just uh, I'm just a uh, sort of flabbergasted that this move is going down so quickly uh, after the the current lease doesn't the, the current lease doesn't run out till what 2033 or something like that but the idea that this stadium which costs 6 100 million dollars is going to be obsolete for the bears in just a few years is uh, stunning 
It would be better if they could win some games. But, Lynn, what do you think about this issue? Talk about head fake. I still have a very well-preserved T-shirt that says Tampa Bay White Sox. Yeah, Yeah. right. So for everyone listening, you know, when the White Sox threatened to move to Florida, uh, which it seemed out in hindsight they really did kind of want to stay in Chicago, and they, you know, they got the uh, state legislature to create what became the authority that built the new Comiskey, or whatever we call it now. Uh, so this might just be as time time passes on. Uh, if they can get out of Soldier Field into something bigger and better, into uh, a place where they think they could fill, uh, whatever. Now, what I don't know is if the NFL really wants to let Chicago, one of the big markets, have a major team exist in a uh, in, in a wealthy uh, suburb instead of in a centrally located place where you could have a base audience uh, as diverse as the city who you know as the city is uh, accessible there are a variety of transportations trains bus uh, etc so maybe the NFL has some pressure point to put on or not uh, anyway I'm curious what will fill Soldier Field if they lose the Bears anything good nope. question you know there's, there's another option here uh, that was uh, that was kicked around uh, 20 or 20 or 30 years ago but wasn't technologically feasible then that's the, that's the dome Soldier Field uh, yeah, or build a, a stadium, yeah. a dome stadium nearby, uh, so that you can uh, have the ability to, uh, to attract a Super Bowl or a Final Four or whatever, which we can't do now. Uh, I'm not saying that's on the table, but maybe it's something that ought to be on the table here. Uh, I, uh, I, like I said, I think there's a real risk that the team is going to go. Uh, I don't think that's good for the city, uh, but uh, there needs to be something done here to maybe come up with something that's not quite as frankly obsolete and i'm sorry soldier field for 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 major league football purposes is obsolete that's greg hines of grains thanks to him also to uh, ray long of the tribune heather sharon of wttw and lynn sweet of the sun times up next nick gale this is connected to chicago podcasts are available online at wlsam.com This is Nick Gale. Governor Pritzker this week signed legislation declaring June 19th, Juneteenth, an official state holiday. The bill signing just days ahead of Joe Biden signing a bill making the date a federal holiday. The state legislation commemorates the abolition of slavery throughout the United States and its territories in 1865. Juneteenth will be recognized as National Freedom Day in Illinois. The governor signing the bill at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library and Museum in Springfield. President Lincoln's executive order and proclamation meant that every person in the Confederate States should have been freed right away. But as the history of Juneteenth reminds us, it took more than two years after Lincoln signed it before it would be enforced in places like Texas at the edge of the Confederacy and the Union. Today, even a full 156 years after the 13th Amendment formally and constitutionally declared slavery illegal throughout the entire United States, we all know what it means to see justice as yet undelivered. 
Illinois will recognize Juneteenth throughout the state, lowering flags covered by the Illinois Flag Display Act to half-staff on Saturday, June 19th. In addition, a Juneteenth flag will fly over the state's capital. River Forest Mayor Rory Hoskins explained to ABC7 the meaning of the flag's design, which was created in 1997 during the 130th anniversary of Lincoln's signing of the Emancipation Proclamation. The star pays homage to the Texas legacy of Juneteenth, you know, the, the Lone Star State, Texas. The outline is a bursting star, represents a nova or even a supernova, right? An exploding star. Uh, it represents uh, a new beginning um, for Americans, right? And then the colors, red, white, and blue, consistent with the colors of the American flag, are intended to remind us that even the enslaved people were Americans and their descendants are Americans and the descendants of slaves are committed to the vision of America and making America a more perfect union. Illinois State Rep. LaShawn Ford was one of the lawmakers who helped craft the bill and attended the bill signing. <laughs> Nothing I could say today um, could give justice to what we're about to accomplish today and that is to sign the bill for Juneteenth. But I'll say Thank you to the governor for standing by your word. To commemorate the signing of the bill and to go along with the holiday, the Presidential Library will have a copy of the Emancipation Proclamation on display through July 6th. For Connected to Chicago, I'm Nick Gale. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Matt Mellon for production assistance. I'm Bill Cameron, WLS News. Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.